Welcome to Next Up, a Mid-Century Homes production, where we highlight the people, the places, and the work of folks that are making an impact in the world of mid-century design and architecture. And when we're not conducting interviews for this podcast, we're making mid-century dreams come true in Boise, Idaho. You can find out more about the work that we do online at mid-centuryhomes.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Boise Mid-Century Homes. On today's podcast, we have Henry Whiting. He is the owner of the one and only Frank Lloyd Wright Building in Idaho, located in a little town called Bliss in the southern part of the state. Teeter's Knoll was designed by Wright in 1952 at the tail end of his career. Wright was working on the Guggenheim Museum in New York, among other well-known projects at the time. Henry purchased the studio in the early 80s and has been the steward for nearly 40 years now. Vance and I took a half-day trip back in the fall to visit with Henry and recorded over two hours of audio for this interview. We've pared this down just a tad bit and focused on some of the more important topics regarding Henry's home, his story, and the people that made significant impressions and contributions to both along the way. And before we hear from Henry, here's a quick word from our sponsor. We opened our interview with Henry asking about his love for architecture and where it first originated. Here, listen in. But I was surprised because I I I loved the architecture and I our house was being um, added on to often while I was young and so I was I was used to being in a construction site. And my mother my mother tells me that I um, at at age three or something, this is before I can even remember it, that Uncle Alden came over to consult with her on on some addition for the house and it, was, it had to do with the landscaping outside. And they were sitting there and I came and I immediately got up in his lap and sat in his lap, which was totally out of character for uh-huh. me. I was kind of a standoffish boy and uh, I don't remember that but I do what I do remember is that um, she always encouraged my friendship with with Alden and and Alden Alden was a was an artist and an architect in a family of engineers okay and and, um, and I grew up my father was a mechanical engineer as well and so I grew up in a family of of engineers but my proclivity was not in that direction it was yeah. towards art and i and we had, there were six of us children and each uh, um, my parents were really good about not putting us in competition mm-hmm. with each other yeah, right. they recognized different different talents for different uh, people in the family and so they encouraged uh, mom in particular encouraged my friendship with alden and um, I, well, you know, when I was about seven, the f- my first memory is going to his studio, um, and and the Alden Dow Home and Studio is a National Historic Landmark and is one of the great works of of architecture anywhere. It's a, ver- a very mm. his most famous building, 
and you, the most famous room in it is called the, what we call the floating conference room. And basically you walk down this series of in, steps inside and you sit in what's essentially like a, a little Japanese tea house. And the scale is very low. The window head is, is at about five feet. So you have to be sitting there. And your feet are actually below the level of the pond yeah. outside. And, you, and cool. so you look and you look out almost on the level of the pond. Right, right. And so when I was about seven or eight, I went there for the first time with my mother because they were, they were consulting. He was showing some drawings, and yeah. I remember sitting next to her, and he was on the other side. And I, I just, I, even at that young age, I could not imagine how anyone could ever say no to an architect in such a beautiful setting. Right, it right. was so spectacular. Yeah. It remains to me, is the most beautiful building in the world. Then we transitioned to the history of the studio and how he ended up purchasing it. The studio was built for Archie and Patricia Teeter, and uh, it was designed in 1952. I think Patricia wrote Frank Lloyd Wright maybe in 1951, asking if he would be interested in doing a, a, a studio for them. At that point, Archie Teeter was probably the most famous living artist in Idaho. He was a landscape painter, and he spent, he grew up in this area, and he grew up in, he was born in, near Boise, and then he spent a lot of his late teenage years here in the Hagerman Valley, and he knew, he knew the area very well. Um, he, 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 was, he started painting as a very young person, and it was, you know, it was kind of an awkward thing because, you know, real men don't paint. And he, you know, Idaho in the in the teens and twenties was mm -hmm. was not a place that, you know, that that would um, be embraced. That would be embraced, right. right? And so, so, but he nevertheless knew that he wanted to do it, and he kept going with it. And by the um, in the late 1920s, he started going over to Jackson, Wyoming, and, and he was one of the original Jackson Hole landscape painters, and and um, in starting in the 1920s, and you know now that's a very that's almost a separate genre of of painting because there are so many artists that do that, but he was he was the original person that did that, and he. In Jackson, he met his wife in about 19, I think it was 1941, and they got they got married. She was from Chicago, and she had grown up in Oak Park, which is where Wright, you know, had lived. And she had been a student of Wright's great uncle, of Wright's uncle, Jenkins Lloyd Jones, in a school called it was called the Abraham Lincoln Center, and it was actually designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And um, Patricia claimed to be in his la in Jenkins' last class when, before they closed down after World War One, I, I think it was. And, okay. and um, um, so, so when she wrote to Frank Lloyd Wright, 
you know, you have to think in 1952, Wright is in the process of designing the Guggenheim Museum. Mm -hmm. He's yeah. the most famous architect in the United States, certainly, if not the world. And here, the, she has this dream. She did, not not Archie so much, but she had this dream of, of having Frank Lloyd Wright design a studio for mm -hmm. them in rural Idaho. So it, it, very common thing for people to write um, right to ask him to design a house, and they would always try to think of a little way, a little in with him, or uh -huh. whatever you want to say. And her in was Jenkins Lloyd Jones, yeah. and she um, managed to convince him to to uh, do this. And to me, that's remarkable. If if there even was an architect today who was as famous as Frank Lloyd Wright was in 1952, to think of going to rural bliss idaho and building a building it's, yeah. it's unheard of mm -hmm. yeah. it's just it just wouldn't it wouldn't happen mm -hmm. yeah. and but he had time plus he also had the structure of all of his talius and fellowship apprentices to help him out with it and so he agreed he agreed to do it and and archie having grown up in this area knew the hagerman valley like the back of his hand and and there was this one particular spot that he liked on this on this bluff where the studio sits now and of course it was high and dry and it was the 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 road outside here was was the the main road through southern idaho at that point um, this little two-lane road um, so, so it was actually quite busy, and it's, it was just a very narrow site, and um, the local ranchers thought, well, you can't raise cattle there, so it's what, of what use is yeah. it? And so, so um, uh, they, they bought this uh, roughly two-acre property for $125 from the neighbor. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, I thought you were going to say 125000 No, no, no. <laughs>
and you can um, hear the sound of the rapids and the river from mm -hmm. here. And and Wright actually designed awning windows to channel the the sound of the of the water into the studio. But it's there 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 may be there may be certain buildings that have a more beautiful expansive view of the river and the canyon or whatever but i think this is the finest finest site all along the snake river because you really are connected to the river by the sound and of yeah. course mm -hmm. the 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 uh the we're near the birds of prey nat, nat uh wildlife area and so we in the winter time especially we have bald eagles and golden eagles and uh, osprey and herons and red tail hawks and it, it's a it's a mm -hmm. amazing bird watching place as well yeah so. it's a beautiful site but yeah how about some more questions about the actual architecture yeah well i mean this home interacts really well within nature i mean as you just said um but when you first came upon the home it was vacant yes um what were the surrounding circumstances that led you to really want to acquire this? I probably have to take a, a bit of a step back to, to answer that, but I, I hope this is okay. But I, uh, um, in college, I took a course on, on Frank Lloyd Wright that was taught by a professor named John Keenitz. And Keenitz, I didn't know anything. I didn't know much about Frank Lloyd Wright when I went to college. And the, my second semester, uh, Professor Keenitz, who was retired at that point, came back to teach a course on Frank Lloyd Wright. And he, as I now understand it, he starting in the 1930s, he taught the first university level um, course de dedicated solely to Frank Lloyd Wright at the University of Wisconsin, where I where I was a student. And he came back to to uh, do one one last one last um, semester and I got so excited by that that was a that was a very a pivotal point in my life it was uh, um, second semester of fr uh, freshman year and it was important to me first of all looking backwards because it put my whole life with Alden Dow into historic context and mm -hmm. I understood where Alden Alden was in the world of architecture and and consequently where I was but more important than that it absolutely lit my fire about architecture and about mm -hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright and and he t it was a class that met every um every uh Thursday evening at from 6:30 until 9:30 at night which is like when you're a college student, that might be the worst time <laughs> imaginable because at least in Madison, everybody liked to go out and celebrate the anticipation of the weekend. And so, but to, and to sit through a three hour class like that was, was unheard of, but he claimed to have the world's best collection of Frank Lloyd Wright slides. And I was just mesmerized every, 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 lecture and, and he gave a lecture on falling water and it was interesting for me because I'd seen falling water um, only in black and white photographs at that point mm -hmm. and I thought that the cantilevered balconies were white and when I learned from his color slides that it was actually they were actually a beige color and that the 
the beige looked completely different in the springtime when the the trees were leafing out than they did in the fall. It was it just was a revelation to me. And um, he actually, you know, he was in his 80s at this point, and he gave the same lecture twice without realizing it. And there were about, <laughs> there were about 300 students in that class. It, it, the word got around that. Keenitz was teaching mm -hmm. again, and so from all over campus they came to, to attend, and there wasn't a seat to be had in the lecture hall, and I, I noted that not once in that, not, not one person got up and left, even though they'd already seen this. It was so spellbinding mm -hmm. and so magical. But another time he came in to, the, to give the lecture and he, he walked down this, in this old round lecture hall with a balcony and it's all creaky and everything and everything is wooden. And he walked in, uh, set his books on the, on the um, podium and then he went to the chalkboard behind it and he had his back facing to everybody and he picked up a piece of chalk and with great big letters he he did f l l w on the chalkboard right frank lloyd wright's initials obviously the way he signed his drawings f l l w and when he turned around he had he had tears in his eyes and his his lips were quivering and his hand was shaking because he was so moved by what he had just done and then he proceeded to talk for an hour and a half about the beauty of that signature and how what it meant to Frank Lloyd Wright's life and the upswinging W of uh, uh, the end of the W and how Wright's optimism got him through all these hard times and this uh, signature was like that. And I was just blown away mm -hmm. that anybody could be that passionate about something. Right. And somehow that that passion has stayed has stayed transferred to yeah. me or whatever and I I just thought you know if I can ever communicate that kind of passion to people I will mm -hmm. consider my life a, a yeah. success or whatever so all of that goes to say that I started to study Frank Lloyd Wright seriously at that point that's my second semester freshman year and I would I'm studying landscape architecture but I would spend all of my free time and most Times it wasn't free in the art history department. Reading old architecture journals, they have had them all in the library there, and learning about Frank Lloyd Wright on my own, studying it on my own. And I was one of the worst landscape architecture <laughs> students ever. <laughs> and I actually did. I actually did flunk out of college. And I, you know, I did this whole restoration before I graduated from college. I was two credits short. Of graduation, and I was known as a as being a you know landscape architecture is like architecture. It's a partner, you know. You you do it in groups, and uh -huh. you didn't want to be Henry's partner because he <laughs> would be a real slacker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I did. I I learned a huge amount about Frank Lloyd Wright. I taught myself, and then that has just stayed with me. So back in that that time there there was only one book out that had uh, that had all of the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in the world and it was this this book by William Allen Storer called the uh, architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright and it had all 400 and some buildings in it and so I had gotten a copy of that and I had perused it and I saw that there was only one 
one building in Idaho that he had designed and, and that this was it. And I kept staring at that drawing because we had been, we had first come to Idaho to go skiing, met Sun Valley, and, and we all loved, absolutely loved Idaho, but I had no idea about this place. So uh-huh. that, that kind of leads into another story, but, um, but that's, that's how, that is how I found out about it. And then I came here to work for a summer, uh, 1977. Uh, my parents were build, had decided to retire in Sun Valley and were building a house up there. And the architect, Neil Morrison Wright, who was not related to Frank Lloyd Wright, but called him his Ill- illegitimate grandfather. And <laughs> he loved he loved Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, but he wasn't related. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, uh, the f- I I moved to Idaho for for that summer. I had one more semester of school to to f- complete, and I I moved here. and And any normal person who moved to Sun Valley would the first thing they do would be go hiking in the Sawtooth or you know up in the mountains or do something like that well the first thing i did was to come down here to see this house yeah. and uh, or this studio and one of my compatriots who i was working with had grown up in Buell and he 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 knew where it was and so i i came and i looked over the chain link fence and i saw this this building that had these these double blackout curtains on all these window bays that we're looking at now and it was it was very mysterious looking and and it, there was a chain link fence and three strands of barbed wire um and and it 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 was intriguing to say the, <laughs> the, the least and i i would come back not what you expected. I don't know what I really expected, but I it, it, it probably wasn't but after I, you know, I decided that I was going to, you know, after after leaving college, I was going to come work for full time for Neil, which was what I did. Um, I would come down here every six months or so and look over that fence and just wonder what was behind those curtains. And I could sort of hear the river, but it was pretty overgrown with vegetation. And I, you know, I just wondered what happened. I have I have since learned that that year 1977 was the last year the Teeters were actually here and their health was deteriorating and Archie died in the next year 78 and and Patricia died in 81. Were they in Idaho when that happened? No no they were they were they had moved to Carmel. Archie couldn't be up at this altitude Mm -hmm. anymore so he had they they and I think Patricia wanted to be in a more um, artistic community of mm-hmm. like Carmel and, and so so they they had moved down there but what was interesting is that I every time I would come here things would look a little bit worse and a little bit worse and mm-hmm. I've since learned that it, you know the house had been abandoned right at the studio had been abandoned at that point and that's why it was was looking worse and worse uh-huh. and so um, finally in 1982 um, the uh, I I have I was I was in Ketchum and a friend of mine was coming down to Hagerman to visit his friend and I I said to Bruce why don't why don't you check on the Teeter Studio and see see what's going on with that 
and I completely forgot about telling him this. And, and uh, he calls me up the next day and he reads me the real estate listing. And it had come on the market five days before that. And it, it was so lucky. It was just destined to be. It was just it was just meant to be. So I I, I and this is how these fate coincidences work. I was in Ketchum and I was about to fly back to Florida to meet with my uncle Alden about a, a, a college program I helped him out with. And so I made an appointment with the realtor in Hagerman and came here the next day before I drove to Boise to the airport. And originally I had I had no idea or intention about buying the studio. I just wanted to see the inside. Yeah. And it wasn't exactly, I mean, realtors probably go crazy over people doing stuff like that. I know the, the <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright realtors are very, very discriminating. <laughs> right. Because right. people will probably would do that all the time if they could get away with it. Yeah. Fortunately, the woman here um, did not let us in. And here I am. I'm 26 years old. I think I may be the youngest person to ever buy a, a Frank Lloyd Wright building, and uh, my my friend is maybe 27, and we and we, you know, show up at her office, and she was just couldn't have been nicer, and she brought us out here to see it. And that day, that winter, it had snowed. It, there was about two feet of snow on the ground, which in all the years I've been here since then, I've never seen that much snow on mm -hmm. the ground. And it was, it was um, 20 degrees below zero that day, and the all those blackout curtains were pulled, and the power, the, you know, the teeters hadn't been here for five years, and the power had been turned off, and so it was 20 degrees below zero inside the studio <laughs> as well, and nobody, th nobody thought. To bring a match or a flashlight because why would you you know why would you need a, a flashlight for a, a real estate showing or whatever um, but one of us and we may have had to go back out to the car found a book of matches and so <laughs> we, we came in the door having had to push through two of those heavy heavy canvas curtains and lit a match and and at that point, you know, you could see the, the you could see this dining room table was here, and these chairs were all covered with white sheets, and they kind of looked like ghosts. And then I came over here to the uh, edge here, and I found the, you know, the curtain thing that you pull, and I opened the curtains, and gradually the the whole room became illuminated, wow. and. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was a total mess. I mean, there was stuff all over the place. There were boxes and all kinds of stuff uh, here. Plus these, these, the table and chairs here were, were covered with white sheets. And, um, but anyway, that's how, that's, that's how I discovered it. And then, and then, and then just to go a little bit further with that, I was, I, I, you know, as I say, I had no idea about about buying it or anything. And as I'm driving from from Hagerman to Boise, I started to slowly conceive in my mind of this: what a great way to learn about Frank Lloyd Wright firsthand would be to buy this place and restore it. 
and um, the you know the windows the windows were all single pane glass, and they had condensed on the inside and dripped, and so the trim was all water stained, and it just everything looked terrible, and mm-hmm. there were several structural problems with it. So so as I'm driving to Boise, I'm conceiving of this and flying back to to West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, I'm I'm thinking about this, and the first person I see, coincidentally, mm-hmm. is my uncle Alden, mm-hmm. yeah. and I explain to him what what the situation was, and and um, uh, um, what uh, you know. It's basically, I thought, what do you th- what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea f- for me to do this? And he he was a man of few words. That you know, this was the last year of his life, and he he said. Um, he said, "You know, Henry, I th- I really think that you should do that." And he said, and then he went on and he said, "As a matter of fact, I think it's so important that you that you do that that you that if I were your father, I would buy that place for you." Huh. And then he paused for a moment. And he said, "But then it wouldn't mean as much." Yeah. And to mm-hmm. that's. That's like been the difference in my life. He was uh, saying, "You've got to take the risk. Right. You've got to take the chance." And that's one of the most beautiful things that's ever said to me, and I never, never forgot it. Yeah. So, so that's, so I did. I right there, you I, made it up I, in your mind. I, you were buying it. I was going to do it. I was going to do it. And I, um, my parents thought I'd gone off the deep end because here I. Was I was living in Ketchum and Sun Valley, and I had a whole f- circle of friends up there, and we skied and we hiked and we, you know, we did architecture and we just loved what we were doing up there. And here I am thinking of going 90 miles away, down to Hagerman, which was, I won't say in the middle of nowhere, but it was, you know, it was there. There weren't a lot of. 26-year-olds who were moving from Ketchum to Hagerman. And, and there still aren't. <laughs> but but um, I went, I did it, and then we started a, basically a two-year restoration project. And uh, any regrets? No regrets at all. <laughs> no, no regrets at all. I've, I've met in the process of doing that and in the subsequent years, but especially right in the beginning, I met all of the uh, all of the people who I had read about in bo- in books and magazines, and and basically what I did was was that I lived here for for two months to get the feeling feeling of it, and then I made an appointment down at Taliesin West because here here I am, a 26 year old in rural Idaho, and there's no network of mm-hmm. there's yeah. no Frank Lloyd Wright network there's there's nothing so what do you do i mean what how, what so the obvious thing was was to me was to make an appointment down at Taliesin West and i and i which i did and i had learned from the papers here that one of the uh, original apprentices Tom Casey was still down there so i called Tom and i made an appointment with him and i um I uh, w- went down there and met with, with Tom and Dick Carney, who was the president of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, and then Bruce Brooks Pfeiffer, who was the archivist, who was 
White, who was a very well-known uh, person in the Frank Lloyd Wright world. He's probably written 30 to 50 books about, about Wright, and, and he was in charge of the archives. And so we're sitting around a, a table at Taliesin West, and they don't know who I am from Adam, and, and um, uh, we're we're talking about this and, and they're being polite and everything. And um, so I, I, I explained my goals or whatever for, of uh, what I wanted to do with the place. And I think they were trying to figure out what, what, what is, what is it? What is this? Cause he's so young and everything. And, and uh, so they said to me, well, Henry, how did, how did you ever get interested in Frank Lloyd Wright? And I said to them, um, well, I grew up in Midland, Michigan, and my uncle was Alden Dow, and everything changed in that moment yeah. because Alden was so highly respected mm -hmm. there, and um, all of a sudden they started taking me seriously uh -huh. or whatever. And after, after our meeting, Bruce... Pfeiffer took me all around Taliesin and West, gave me the tour of the famous drafting room and the and the um, the theaters that were there and the um, the dining room and the kitchen and and all of the different places I've been to so many times since then. But but um and then he took me in the living room, uh, um, uh, and um, we're we're standing in the middle of the living room. And he says, Henry, wait here just a minute. I'll be right back. And he he disappears into the back, and I'm standing in the room, kind of wondering exactly what's going on. And I hear this this kind of shuffling or thumping in the back, and out comes Bruce with Mrs. Wright, and and um, he he comes over to me and he says, Mrs. Wright, I'd like you to meet Henry Whiting. This is I get choked up about this. This is Alden and Beta's nephew. And Mrs. Wright started sobbing. Really? And she remembered Veda, particularly Veda, not so much Alden, but Veda. And she remembered scrubbing floor, and she was recounting this to me. She re recounted scrubbing floors with Veda in the summer of 1933 at Taliesin and, <laughs> wow. and how they'd done this. And then they had remained friends over the years. And Alden had gone back and had made three different films that at Taliesin, and, and um, one of the great tragedies that happened in 1946 was that Mrs. Wright's um, daughter, Svetlana, had been killed in a, a car crash in Spring Green, and Alden and Veda had been there that weekend, and, they, and Alden and Veda were headed back to Mi uh, Michigan, and the Wrights were headed somewhere else, and they were driving to the airport when they all found out about this. And Alden had gotten a film, filmed, and some still pictures of Svetlana, who was uh, I, uh, uh, just a beloved person. And um, he sent those to Mrs. Wright after afterwards, and they, they she never forgot that they were mm -hmm. always very special. Yeah. And then you know. Back to 1982, um, they a year later, Mrs. Wright, this is shortly before Alden died, awarded Alden the Frank Lloyd Wright Creativity Award, wow. which w would probably never have happened if it wasn't for all of that. At this point in the interview, I decided that I wanted to know more about Henry's father. 
This is what he had to say. My, my dad was an engineer, mechanical engineer, and he worked for Dow Chemical for um, his whole career from 1945 when they were married until um, he retired They were in 1977 or so when they moved to Sun Valley. Okay. And so, but he, but he had a, he had an awareness of, of architects tend to be a little snobby about uh, engineers, about engineers don't have much of an aesthetic sense. And Mm -hmm. and for some, in some ways that may be overgeneralization, but in other ways that's kind of true. But my dad had a very, very refined sense of, of, of aesthetic and, and um, he, um, well, when they just, this is a whole different story, but when they decided to retire to Sun Valley, um, I went with them and I was in the, on the, in, a, in on the original meeting with the realtor to find a piece of property and because um, they knew they wanted to build a house. And then we went all around the area looking at, at houses there and, and mom and dad would point out which house they liked and which ones they liked and which ones they didn't. Mm-hmm. And invariably, the ones that they liked were by this architect, Neil Morrison Wright. And so we set up a meeting that day uh, for the, for the, for the, to uh, meet with Neil to, about designing the house. And um, it, I was fascinated because my only other experience with an architect was Alden, and what, yeah. what was a good, what was it going to be like? And, right. and so I I was watching Neil pretty closely. This, Did you this step whole... down into a tiny tea room where the <laughs> no. was at eye level? <laughs> no, <laughs> not this time. <laughs> not this. Not, not this time. But, but you know, I, I bet even back then. I, I always thought architects were artists first and businessmen second, mm-hmm. and I've since learned that that is a rare, the rare, the rare exception. And all the architects that I've been really close with have been artists first, and and Neil was Neil was both. He was, but in any case, we the, he asks you know the usual questions when you go to an architect: how many bedrooms? What do you want? Yeah. This and that. And it was amazing to me that my parents could pull that off so quickly you know because they were so used to working with Alden but they knew how to work with an architect mm-hmm. and and so the 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 meeting had gone they had a beautiful site chosen up above Dollar Cabin um, in Sun Valley uh, overlooking the whole valley it's it's up the house was built on up above Dollar Cabin and and uh, the whole meeting had taken place, and I can, I knew that Neil he was taking notes like architects do, and um, um, he had clearly envisioned a typical, you know, Sun Valley sort of mm-hmm. c- kind of contemporary house, wooden house or whatever that was um, that was uh, rectangular, and but it was a it was a very high exposed site, and at the very end of the uh, meeting, he said, um, "What." Now, what's the question you, the one question you haven't asked me? And my dad said, have you ever been to Snowbird? Do you know, do you know Snowbird, the architecture at Snowbird and the tram building and the, but they were poured concrete, they were poured in place concrete. He said, we really like that architecture. So right at the very end of the meeting, literally as we're all standing up to go, everything changed. 
I mean, he Neil, what everything changed, and so this was at Labor Day of two of nineteen seventy six, I believe, and and um, I went back to school, and mom and dad went home, and then they, in I'm going to say sometime in October, November, Neil called up, and he says I've got plans ready for you to look at, and so they picked me up and I came out here with them for the original meeting and and of course I'm thinking you know I'm I've I, I'm in landscape architecture school and the first thing I'm wondering is, is has Neil been up all night doing these drawings because that's the way architects work mm -hmm. you know they pull an all-nighter before I was you know so I'm going to check his eyes to see how awake <laughs> he was and everything and so he he lays out the floor plan and I can immediately see that the that the floor plan is based on a hexagon or on a, on an equilateral oh. triangle. That all the all of the angles of the house, because of the site, which had a 270 degree view, he felt like if he put a rectangular house on that, it wouldn't take advantage of the views. And I had been studying Frank Lloyd Wright's. Uh, basically equilateral triangle module houses for I, I I was fascinated with them and I could not believe that here we come to and and Neil has proposed this this hexagonal house that was to be made out of poured concrete and so it was one level you know one pour on top of another and uh -huh. but and it was a waffle slab construction, which is, you know, how they build parking structures. Those, you know, it looks like a giant waffle kind of thing. But these were equilateral triangle waffles. So, <laughs> so um, in any case, um, Neil asked me to come work for him the following summer to help lay out the landscape design. And so that's how I ended up in Sun Valley was there. And and then at the end of the, at the, end of the summer, I, um, of course, fell in love with with I'd never been in Idaho in the summertime. We'd only come to ski every yeah. spring vacation from 1968 till I moved here. We 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 came here, and um, I, but I'd only seen it in the winter time, and I got to experience the mountains and alpine lakes and mountain wildflowers and things like that that I'd never seen. And um, so at the end of the summer, I had to go back and finish one semester at school, and and I asked Neil, I said. Neil, could I come work for you full time? I, I just begged. I just begged him, and he says, "Well, Henry, I, you know, I don't have that much work for a landscape architect." And I said, "Well, I don't want to do landscape architecture. I want to learn how to do working drawings, and and I want to, I want to, you know, I want to learn that aspect of it." And uh, so he sort of reluctantly agreed to let me, let me come, and. Um, uh, so that house was a you know a four four and a half year project to build Your because parents. it was yeah the parent, yeah. my parents house and it it took a long time to build it because concrete you you know you have to you have to build the forms then you have to pour the concrete then you have to let the concrete set up for 28 days and then you have to remove the forms and then you can start building yeah. it's like a layer of pancakes so it took four years to build it and um course all the local people wonder what in the hell's going on up, up there because <laughs> they, they tented they had to tent it in the winter time to keep it so they could build year round or it would have taken eight years to right. build, build it so um but 
for me, I, I'm really proud of that. That was the first really, um, I don't, there, there were Troutner houses in Ketchum, in, in, in Ketchum that were done, Art Troutner in design. But this was the first time anybody really stuck their neck out and built something modern. Yeah. And now it's fairly commonplace up there. Right. But, but that was the first, first, and not everybody liked it at the time. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it's, I'm particularly proud of that that aspect of being being involved evolved, right. involved with that so but in, in any case back to my father he had this incredibly refined sense of um, detail and term and he wanted he loved the idea of, of blurring the distinction between interior and exterior yeah. and so great effort and expense and care was put into um, how the how the the interior and exterior interpenetrated mm -hmm. because of him yeah and and they challenged neil um that that was by far neil's masterpiece next we asked if there were any structural challenges with the studio the prow the the tie end of the studio which what we call the prow is actually a 35 foot cantilever which is a huge cantilever from from and and right had you can tell on his original drawings had had agonized over what to do with that and and it had, the drawing had been erased so many times that the paper had shredded there and he had done, put it they had put a diagonal knee brace in, to help support that and that diagonal was there when when I was here at the other end of that of the river facade nearer the front door there's there's also a 15 foot cantilever that sticks out that way, and when I got here there was this really ugly television antenna, they, you know those metal open grid yeah. kind of television antenna things that supported that cantilever, and I just I couldn't abide by that either. So, so Tom Casey, the the Taliesin apprentice, who was actually the their structural man invented this wonderful detail that clads both both ends of the of that facade in, uh, in um, a detail that basically extends the windowsill line through the rock and 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 diagonally goes up and and support it both of those roof both of those cantilevers and it's really quite a a beautiful and an inventive thing that that it looks so natural that people can't believe it wasn't there from the beginning, and I think there was a there was another structural problem at the very low prow as well, and we there was another one of those TV antenna things there, and they just drove me crazy. <laughs> so we we fixed that one as well. We asked Henry if he was prepared for this project, and this is what he said. But the interesting thing is that working for four years on a house based on a triangle module i you know this is second hand second nature to me right I, it's a I, language you already speak i, I speak yeah. this language totally and and i was more prepared to do this than than just about anybody would right. have been and and so you know when i when i offered to or didn't offer when i insisted that i was going to modify the kitchen and the bathroom um I knew what I was talking about. The kitchen and the bathroom here were originally squares imposed upon this this triangular landscape, and they looked so out of place to me. And so I, plus they were tiny. So, 
I basically moved the kitchen and bathroom back into that that back space and and had it conform with the grid with Frank Lloyd Wright's grid and so that that was you know my idea was that um you not be able to tell what Frank Lloyd where Frank Lloyd Wright ended and Henry Whiting started to do it in in that sort of a way that most people except for historians who knew what the original floor plan looked like and, <laughs> and knew that <laughs> Then we wanted to know how others have responded to the restoration of the studio. It was it was kind of funny because um, in um, 1986, I learned that there was a, this would be four years after I bought Teeter's Knoll and, and two and a half, two years after I'd finished the restoration, I learned that there was going to be a conference in Los Angeles, a, um, a Frank Lloyd Wright conference, and it was going to be, be, it was what initially, what eventually became the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy. Okay. And the year before they had started in Buffalo, they'd had a meeting of all the Frank Lloyd Wright public building administrators, and they'd started to network together, uh, Falling Water, you know, Oak Park, Home and Studio, Talias and Talias and West, Guggenheim, all those sorts of buildings. And so they'd gotten together to network and share resources mm -hmm. and ideas and things and so and that was 1985 and 86 they decided to have op have the conference in Los Angeles at the Hollyhock House and open it up to private homeowners for the first time and so I heard I heard about that and I I offered to give a talk about my restoration here uh -huh. and here I am now by now I'm in my 30s or whatever and I go and start talking what were quite mostly uh historians or you know they were they were both but but I with my youthful enthusiasm and and, and talk telling about how to change a Frank Lloyd Wright house and do it in a in a way that um is sympathetic to the architecture right. and and in a graceful sort of a way yeah and I didn't realize that I wasn't exactly preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the opposite of yeah. the choir. Yeah. Would be. But the but but my salvation was the fact that um Joel Silver, the movie producer who was a enorm and still is an enormous fan of Frank Lloyd Wright, had uh, bought the Storer House in LA. It's one of the concrete block houses and he had hired Eric Lloyd Wright Frank's Lloyd Wright's grandson to do the re restoration of it. They had a, a number of things to do, and they were sort of the the keynote speakers or the headliners for that conference. And what came out was that they had done exactly the same thing that I did, only uh, with a different piece of architecture. Yeah. That they had respected what was originally there, and 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 done. Right. You know. Done that, and so, but they were able to do it with the name behind them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, but yeah, but anyway, that, that, it was it was it was all kind of interesting. Yeah. And now it's pretty much standard practice when when somebody buys a right house, um, they will inevitably alter the kitchens and the bathroom. We asked Henry what space overwhelmed him the most when he first saw the studio. This is what he had to say. What a dramatic space this is. This, this, the main studio room, which is three quarters of the building, is one of the most dramatic 
um, interiors that Wright ever created. And um, I, know, I know I'm biased about that, and that's a very subjective opinion, but I have been to quite a few Wright buildings, and this is, this is one of the most glorious interior spaces. And it's one of the lesser-known ones, um, but that's real. That that grabbed me at first, and the, and you know, and then I could see the uh, the potential if it was only, you know, it was like bringing an antique out of <clears throat> out of the attic, and and refinishing it and making it sing again and making it glorious again, and and in the you know the thirty seven years that I've gotten to inhabit this space since then, it's just it's a never ending. Um, source of delight. It's it's interesting because this is an artist studio. This is not a home. Uh, Wright Wright would not have done this uh, a, a building that soars like this. This is this is a space that's meant to facilitate creativity mm -hmm. and to inspire an artist, Archie Teeter, and so. There are more diagonal lines in this interior. Almost everything you look at is, with the exception of the vertical rock posts, is diagonal. The windowsills are diagonal. They relate to the slope of the roof plane. Um, the the floor plan is that you know is like we talked about is based on an equilateral triangle. It, it's actually an it's actually an equilateral parallelogram, which is two two triangles put together. But Everything follows. Wright starts by laying out a grid on a piece of paper of, of um, you know, repeating equilateral um, parallelograms, and then he lays a, he laid a piece of tracing paper on top of that, and basically lay, you know, put in the walls. But the, all the walls follow parallel with with those angles, and so so there are very few right angles in this in the studio, and. Meaning that there are there are diagonals and and um, a diagonal is kind of is an interesting thing think concept to think about because it's it's kind of an unresolved line. I think you could probably say a horizontal and a vertical vertical lines are resolved and that they're stable. Well, the a diagonal line is not stable. It it, it looks like it needs to go one way or another but the, but it's a three-dimensional conception in the in this studio and it it would be very easy for me to imagine this the way it soars soars up towards the prow be very easy to, for me to imagine this being a, a chapel uh, and and i think that that would be wholly appropriate because wright would consider um a studio space for another artist to be a spiritual thing and he created a, a you know I don't think it's exaggerating to call this a very spiritual space and and where it soars off to infinity and to inspire you know inspire you to think outside the box this is this is you know right talked about breaking the box or whatever well this interior breaks the box as much as any interior he ever created. And I think Archie Teeter found it inspiring. I know that my late wife Lynn found it very inspiring, and I, I certainly, certainly do as well. 
but I do like to sit I do like to sit here and read and there will be times when I'm I'm reading and I'll look up and I'll just be blown away by how beautiful it is the way the sun comes into the you know this is all about light it's yeah. a, in an artist studio it's all about light and and the you know late in the afternoon the light comes in and it filters through the leaves and everything shimmers inside and and um it can be hard. It can be hard to sit there and read and concentrate on what you're reading <laughs> because it's so beautiful. Yeah. And you see some. I see something different all the time. The people talk about how when they live in right houses, th that you see something new every day yeah. in a right house. And and my experience, and I think most people's experience, is that is in terms of relationship of the house to nature and how the architecture and nature interact with each other and because this house is this studio is based on on the equilateral triangle you know with 120 and 60 degree angles you have walls that face in six different directions instead of four different directions so that the the interaction of the light is more complex than in a than in a typical piece of architecture and it's it's a it's just a great place to live. Mm -hmm. There's a great story about the red tile just to the right hand side of the front door. Listen in as Henry tells us more about that. That tile it's a little red ceramic tile that has the the initials F L L W on it, and it's Frank Lloyd Wright's signature tile. And there's a story behind those that they were they were created in I'm not sure exactly if it was the 40s or 50s but but one of um, Wright's uh, apprentice from um, um, San Francisco Aaron Green his mother-in-law was a potter and she made these red squares and uh, and then they were placed on buildings and there's a lot of varying opinions as to which building got a red tile and which one didn't and this mm -hmm. and that but it was Wright's way of signing signing his buildings like an artist would sign a painting or something like that and maybe it's his ego or whatever but anyway it's, it's a wonderful thing the Teeter studio never had one and my father-in-law Buck Fawcett, who was a who was a original Frank Lloyd Wright client for the Fawcett House in Los Banos, um, was a close friend of Aaron Green's, and Buck had been up here uh, many times. He absolutely loved to come here and and be in this space because it was so familiar to him, yet so different, and he. He had taken a liking to me. He always liked me quite a bit. And he he finally decided, and this is without my knowing, uh, to, he went to Aaron and he said, Aaron, I have a favor I'd like to ask you. And Aaron says, well, Buck, you know I'd do anything for you. Aaron was the first person who had introduced Buck to Frank Lloyd Wright. And they had been lifelong close friends. And Buck said, "Well, no, this is a this is a really big favor I'd like to ask." And he said, "No, no, I I will do anything for you." And Buck says, "Well, you know those those red tiles that your mother-in-law made. Do you do you have any of those left? I'd like to give one to my son-in-law." And um, 
um, Aaron said, well, Buck, I think I have one or two of them left. And so all this happened. Lynn was aware that this was going on and it was all happening behind my back. <laughs> but, um, and these phone calls and things were happening between Buck and her and Lynn, and has it arrived yet? Has, it, has the tile gotten there? And he'd made this beautiful box for it and everything and put it in there. And finally it arrived and I opened it up and there, there could not be a more meaningful gift for me than to have that, that tile. That's absolutely the most special thing I've ever gotten. And it's a beautiful thing. And, I, and so I got Kent Hale, the original stonemason came back and we got him to put it where it is. And I've got pictures mm -hmm. of him, of, of him putting it there. Henry made sure that we knew who Kent Hell was and told us about his involvement in the project. The, one of the great stories of Teeter's Knoll is Kent Hale and the, the mason. And, and Kent had um, heard through the construction grapevine that Frank Lloyd Wright was built was going to be building a house a studio in Idaho, and Kent was from Oakley, and and uh, he had studied landscape architecture at Utah State University, and he knew about Frank Lloyd Wright. He knew who he was. Most people in Idaho to this day don't necessarily know who Frank Lloyd Wright is or was, but. But um, Kent had served in World War II in Europe, and he had seen all the all the stonework that was uh, beautiful cathedrals and the, you know all the old rock work that was done there. And he thought to himself as he was there that you know we have we have beautiful rock in Oakley, I um, and nobody nobody oh, the quarries were not open in Oakley at at that time in World War II. And so this would have been in the early 50s, and Kent, you know, sought out the job and got the job, basically. And, and so they, this was the first major structure that was ever built out of Oakley Stone. Really? And it's now, it's now shipped, you know, around the world. If you go to Oakley today, we were there this spring, there are pallets and pallets of flagstone all through that town. It's amazing. But back in that day, it, the quarries hadn't even been opened, and, and Kent didn't actually use um, quarried rock, but he used what, they, what he called float rock, which would be rock that was sitting on the surface of the, of the land. It, what, you know, they didn't have to dig down and you know, chip it out and do that. And so all the, if you look at Kent's original rock, work, rock it's all, it's weathered, there's lichen on some of it. Um, it's multicolored. It's slight, slightly rounded on the on the sides, and it's it's some of the most beautiful rock in in any Frank Lloyd Wright house. And um, Kent had had um, how do you say, he had he got the job, and then he I don't need to probably get into the story about his difficulties with the teeters, but. Mrs. Teeter, um, who was not here at the time, was back in New York and trying to supervise the job, didn't think that Kent and Archie were doing their job and they were too slow with building up the rock work. And she wouldn't pay 
Kent Hale, the, the mason, and so Kent had to take other jobs to support his family, and she accused him of abandoning the job and fired him with the rock work about two-thirds completed, from basically from the windowsill level down to the base of the prow, and the, the one pillar over there and the fireplace mass were all done by Kent, and after he was fired, that took 20 more masons to complete the <laughs> complete the job and some of the work is so bad that it's just it's really em embarrassing when we did the <laughs> when we did the kitchen in the back the one wall we had to fur it out with um, two by fours about six inches out because it it wove in and out teeters apparently had a Sunday party where everybody drank wine and laid rock and it's it's it's, it's pretty bad but the sad thing that happened about it was that this was this was Kent's you know glori most glorious project. It was his his crowning achievement, and it happened right at the beginning of his career. But it was such a bad memory and a bad story for him that he couldn't even talk to his family about it. And so, so when I came along in 1982, this is 30 years after he did his work almost. Um, I discovered this box full of memorabilia on the top of it. It said Hale Mess on it, and it was basically their lawsuits with Kent, and uh, Kent having to sue them for um, money to get paid. His original bid was $7,000, and he hadn't been paid anything at that point, and so he had to sue for that. And then the, te the teeters actually said in print, Mrs. Teeter said, we actually had to teach the stonemason how to lay stone, which is ironic because <clears throat> here you have the most beautiful rock work almost in any Frank Lloyd Wright house, and there she, she's saying that they had to teach him how to lay rock when the, the stuff that they did is just horrible. <laughs> and and <clears throat> there, were, there were a couple of other um, factors that entered into it. but but um, So I saw that. I saw that box full of memorabilia of the lawsuits, and I, I, you know, I just started thinking about it, and I decided, you know, I'm going to give this Hale guy a call, call, and see if I can, see if I can talk, talk to him, and because I had walked all around, and I was very aware of how beautiful this rock work was on the on the original drawings, it calls for it to look like Frank Lloyd Wright's. A falling water house and actually on the drawing it says it says the stonemason is to look at the uh, January 1938 issue of architectural forum and and to see falling the house that was the first time falling water had been published and that was the pattern he was supposed to follow well, well here we are in 1952 like 15 years later who who in Idaho is going to have seen our <coughs> architectural forum from 15 years earlier? Well, Kent was the one person who knew exactly <laughs> wow. what that meant. Yeah, and so he so cool. He he um, he he really sought sought out the job for that reason. But but in any case, it didn't go well, and he got fired after only about six months of working on it, and had you know completed that much, which is pretty remarkable. And so I called him up, and I called directory assistance, as you did back in those days. When I, when I did the first restoration here, we were on a party line, 
And, and I tell you, talk about difficult. I mean, in the age of cell phones, what, you know, a party line, you'd never knew if somebody tried to call you back because the neighbor could have been on the phone down right. the street and kept it from getting through. Yeah. But in, in any case, I, I got Kent um, and we, and he was, he was pretty with, withdrawn or whatever. And I, you know, he was just, he was polite enough, but he was not exactly warm. And I kept telling him, I, I told him enough about the, uh, rock work that he, he realized I knew what I was talking about and that I wasn't flattering him or anything. And so we slowly, he started to warm up a little bit and, um, I got to the end of the conversation and I said, well, Kent, would, would you ever think of coming back here to see the house? Because I knew he hadn't ever come back yeah. in all those years. And he says, well, maybe. And I said, well, Kent, when, when could you come? And he says, how about tomorrow? <laughs> and he, and he, came, he came the next day and we were friends to the end of his life. And mm. It was just one of the really great stories. He loved to bring people here. Um, his friends and and um, and the guys that worked on the job just loved working with them because we would after we were all done at the end of the day we'd sit down in that little little conversation area that Kent had just built and ha and you know have a beer together and and Kent would start telling stories and everybody would just be captivated. He mm -hmm. he was a great storyteller, yeah. and so. I this summer we actually had the whole extended Hale family here. Oh really? We had about forty wow. forty people from his family and it was just oh. one of the high points for me of ever yeah. ever being here to have them have all of them come and see see it for the first time and, and um some of those guys could look up at any one of those rocks on the top and they could tell because there are many quarries in Oakley now. There's not just one. Yeah. They're they're you know, there are a dozen or so, and they could say, "Well, that one came from so and so's quarry," and this. And it was just amazing how they, how much they knew. And did you say that he was the one that installed the red tile? Yes, he yeah. installed the red tile. So, so kind of redemption. Yeah, you ever yeah the last <laughs> the last, uh, the yeah. last piece to the puzzle. Yeah, you know, in ways. Yeah, it it really it really was, and you know, I look over there now. And there's another plaque on the on the wall that I had asked Di, Di Bowler to to make, and um, she she was the potter at Snake River Pottery, and mm -hmm. she made this little little thing out of out of stone that said Kent Hale Mason, um, 1953-1984. I'm not sure exactly of the years, yeah. but it was interesting for me to look at that in context of having the whole Hale family here because within one year I knew how special Kent was and how special that relationship was mm -hmm. and then I knew him for another 30 years right and uh he he was really a, he his work is the heart and soul of this place yeah there's no question mm -hmm. and he was he was wonderful at this point, we asked Henry if he could imagine himself living anywhere else. You have uh, such a human and emotional connection to uh, to the space you live. And we're kind of curious if you ever could consider yourself living somewhere other than here. 
I don't think so. I, I you know, that I wouldn't. The only, the only time that would have to be would be some unforeseen circumstance that would force me to leave. That you know, health-wise or, or something, something like that. But I, I, I have no desire. As a matter of fact, the long, the longer I'm here the more attached I get to yeah. it. It's really interesting. It's hard to believe that could even happen because I've loved it so much from the very beginning. But it's, I, I love it now as much as I ever, more than I ever have really because I have lived here long enough to, to have observed the nuances. Of, mm -hmm. I, I've often, th there's a, I don't know if it's a Buddhist saying or what, but it, would you rather would you rather climb one mountain a thousand times, or would you rather climb ten or a thousand mountains one time? Mm -hmm. And I'm more of the one mountain a thousand times, yeah. getting it to know. Right. I know that. I mean, to put an Idaho analogy there, I've I've rafted the um, when I was younger, I've rafted the Middle Fork about ten or twelve times, and. Um, I appreciated it every each time yeah. more and more because I could appreciate the subtleties of the different water levels yeah. and the different the different experiences and I I that's just in in my character like that so I I don't have any desire to move, move. I don't I don't have any envy of somebody else's house or whatever you want to say I'm totally totally happy I feel like the luckiest person in the world to yeah. be able to live in a place that I love so much mm -hmm. and to, and when I think back on the, my times in college of studying Frank Lloyd Wright and the the bowels of the art history library that I would have never dreamed that I would be this lucky mm -hmm. yeah. to, to live here to to spend my whole life living here basically and I guess that I guess you would say say that one of the things I enjoy most is we we annually have a tour for the Frank for the uh, Hagerman Valley Historical Society to help them raise money. They're trying to build a museum dedicated to Archie Teeter's paintings, among other things. And I we have in June we have a an annual open house, which is always fun. And I I precede. I greet people out in the in the driveway and give them a little background and I say that the reason that I like to do this so much is because the one thing I wish I could do is I wish I could walk through the front door again for the first time. Yeah. And I I can't do that. Right. So the only way I can do it is through your mm -hmm. eyes. Yeah. And so I love to uh hear I I say if you don't mind, please come up to me at some point you're here and tell me what your impression was of the interior. Yeah. And to watch people's eyes light up as they walk into this space. And, and even, even um, um, we had one of the guys who was here, this was a different thing, the fundraising event for the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy. He had been to every Frank Lloyd Wright building around the world. He had been here passed here 30 years ago but he had never been inside mm -hmm. and he was just floored he was just he, he his mouth was on the on the floor he could <laughs> not believe how what a dramatic experience it is to walk to walk into this so so all the way from an expert like that to somebody who 
oftentimes I'll have to explain to people what it is that an architect does, that an architect is what you call a person who designs buildings. I mean, it's not that they don't even know who Frank Lloyd Wright is, that's fairly common, but but that they don't know. But they, there's something visceral about this space that you, you it's kind of primal and, and uh, visceral that that uh, communicates to people and mm -hmm. and I you know I myself have been inside about 170 or 200 Frank Lloyd Wright buildings and I, I don't have that same visceral kind of experience perhaps walking into the living room at Falling Waters comes close or Taliesin in Wisconsin yeah but there's there's something it's so simple the architecture is so simple it's just too you know, two ideas combined together, um, two plus two equals five, or two plus two equals six. It's There's a synergy between the two ideas that mm -hmm. is really special, and, yeah. it, and it communicates on a level that you don't have to be, um, you don't have to have a PhD in architectural history to understand it. You know how so many buildings nowadays they they have have to have a this lengthy explanation to to try to explain what the architect was intending. Right. There's no there's no need for a yeah for that here. And lastly, we asked Henry for some advice on how to let architecture impact your life more frequently. Well, this may, this may be a little bit esoteric, but um, what I would say to that is is um, the interior space, the feeling of the interior space. Um, there were, and this goes way back to, um, there was a book written called The Book of Tea that was influential on Frank Lloyd Wright, came out in 1906, and it was about the Japanese tea ceremony. And the uh, Kokuzu Okakura, who wrote the book, quoted Lao Tzu, who was a Chinese philosopher, of, he asked the question, what is the reality of the tea bowl, the, the tea bowl itself or the space within, the space within the bowl? And Frank Lloyd Wright transmuted that into what is the reality of the building, the walls and roof or the space enclosed? Mm -hmm. And this has been a guiding principle for me all my life is what is the feeling of the interior space and it's a holistic concept that includes all the proportions the materials everything else it's a it's a whole it's not it's not dissecting a part or or whatever into this that and that it's, it's the whole feeling it's an intuitive thing it's not so much an intellectual thing yeah and i would say that for for people who are looking at, at a, it doesn't have to be a Frank Lloyd Wright building, but to feel the interior of the building, of the, say the living room or whatever, how, what does it feel like? Does it feel good to you? Does it, does it feel whatever? The other thing, and I say this to Frank Lloyd Wright people, is when you, when you go into a piece of architecture, put your damn phone down, put, put all, stop talking to people, and sit there and contemplate it, and the building will speak back to you. Mm -hmm. And it's when you when you are quiet within yourself, and this can happen in a real estate showing, or or this could happen in an architectural tour, but when you're quiet within yourself, the building will speak back to you, mm -hmm. and the better building and and 
And if you like what you're hearing from the building, or if, if you hear something, if you're able to be quiet enough and still enough in your own mind, use that judgment. Yeah. That, that, so that would be the the experience that you would go through yeah. in effort to to select your next, yeah. you know, structure that you would choose to live in. Yeah. Would be to go through that experience. Yes. Be yeah. silent with it. Mm -hmm. When I was when I was a boy, one time um, I was probably seven or eight. We had a forest above our house in Midland, and and I we had a a, a tall pine tree that had had the top broken out of it years ago and it had formed kind of this nest or what it, this where you we would go up and we would sit there and one time I had gone up and I sat there I sat there I don't know how long I lost track of time and I turned and I, I looked down and I saw a doe and her two fawns were right underneath me in the tree uh, below the tree and and I realized that the only reason that she was there was because I was quiet and I had essentially become part of the tree or whatever right. to them. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was rewarded by this this wonderful sighting of uh -huh. that. And I've used that example in architecture. Yeah. If you can be if you can be silent like that. Right. I went to a um Falling Water one time we had a Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy conference there and they, they opened the house to, for a cocktail party before dinner one night and I, I was I was just, I was sitting there and I just, all I wanted to do was just to soak it in and these people kept coming up to me and talking to me and I was just so mad <laughs> I just wanted leave me to alone. leave me alone and, and we were actually at Taliesin in Wisconsin um, last summer or last fall at the Conservancy Conference was yeah. there and they let us spend the whole afternoon at Taliesin and I immediately went for the living room and I found a corner where I, I sat for two hours and just observed people and it huh. was it, it, it was just really really yeah. wonderful and I, I, I believe in contemplation I'm, I'm a uh -huh. that I I think you you learn more if you're silent like like that. Yeah. And, and, uh, well, really, really do appreciate <laughs> <Yeah>. your time. <laughs> oh, and thank you for yeah. appreciating you know this space as much as you have. I, well, I sure do, and I'm but I just feel like I I I don't think a day has gone by in the last thirty seven years when I haven't just thought for a moment of how lucky I am mm -hmm. to be able to inhabit this space and. How lucky I am to be able to inhabit what would be, what is my dream space. Mm -hmm. it, you know, perhaps it could have been another space, but I'm so lucky to be able to be here. Yeah. And now that I'm older, to be to be able to share it with people. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. obviously we love them. that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To watch watch people's eyes light up. Yeah. Uh, um, and see it. I, to proselytize for architecture i for sure. definitely like to i i i try not to be too dogmatic about it but just let people experience it and you don't have to say anything yeah. you can just provide sort of general guidelines and say that, that you know go there but be silent for yeah. a moment and, and for sure. i like and, that and move cuz yeah. that's the way 
And I, you know, when you do, when we do Frank Lloyd Wright tours or whatever, there we have to walk through the house really fast, and it's not really even possible mm -hmm. to do that. And I feel so lucky to be able to sit here and yeah. contemplation and right. And um, well, hey, real quick, um, if people want to learn more about Teeters Knoll, what are the best ways for them to do that? Let's see. Well, the two books that I've written are in you know many of the art the libraries in Idaho. I think they're both sold out. I think they've both sold out, but the first one was um, Teeters Knoll, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's Idaho Legacy, and the second book was um, At Nature's Edge, Frank Lloyd Wright's Artist Studio, uh -huh. which was published in 2007 by the um, University of Utah Press and was awarded the Idaho Book of the Year Award in 2007. Okay. And that is available, and that's a really okay. well-illustrated, beautifully done yeah. book Cool. like that. And other than that, um, I would say to be aware of um, uh, the Idaho Historic... or the... Um, Hagerman Valley Historical Society. We do an annual tour yeah. in the in the spring and June sometime, and I have done tours as well um, with um, for Preservation Idaho mm -hmm. or or preservation groups. Yeah, like for sure. That. And, so, and um, the Hagerman um, Preservation Society is that what you called it? Hager, Hagerman Valley Historical That's Society. What it is. And they have a website where they oftentimes are promoting their events. I believe so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we yeah. can Google and, and find our way there. If they don't have their own website, they're pretty good about getting the word out that when the when the open house is right. going to happen. But so. every every year, there's at least one opportunity through it, some preservation group that's yes, leading it to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. I try to to support. Uh, you know, historic preservation yeah. and architecture and art. Yeah. Um, you know, for for that for that sort of thing. Yeah. So, any other questions? I think you'd answered all of them. Okay. At least, at least for part one, right? Part yeah. one. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you guys awesome. for yeah. coming. Yeah. Thank you for having us. This is fun. This cool. is a lot of fun. Till next time on Next Up. <laughs> <laughs>